Well, we are uh, concluding our study of Scripture that we've been on for the last, I don't know, what has it been, five weeks or so. Um, today we're going to be talking about English Bible translations. If you missed a couple of weeks ago, uh, you, you may be a little bit lost, so go online and, uh, and listen to that, the, the one on textual transmission, because that will relate a lot to what we talk about today. Um, so today we're going to talk about basically the differences between uh, some of the major English Bible translations, why there are differences, and, uh, and what the nature of those are. And then next week we'll get into more specifically the ESV, why we've chosen that, and I'll compare it to some other translations. Um, by the way, tonight, uh, one of the reasons that we switched this to this evening um, was to allow for more questions. So if you have questions, please do stop me. Uh, I, I intended on being stopped several times throughout, so, uh, so we can uh, answer some of those questions. All right. Uh, first of all, just a, a basic kind of introduction to this. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew and Greek. Uh, the Old Testament was pretty much all Hebrew. New Testament was all Greek. So what you have in an English Bible is a translation of those original texts. I think sometimes we get this idea that the Bible was always uh, in English. I don't know. We kind of have that Americanized notion that when we read an English Bible, that's, uh, that's the original Bible. But... Um, we're going to look today at some of the differences. I, I want us to think more in terms of not how this translation is different from another translation. Um, that's another misconception sometimes we have is, well, this translation changes something from this other translation. No, what we need to ask is which one's more accurate to the original Greek and Hebrew. That's what's relevant. Um, so just because there's a traditional way of wording something doesn't necessarily mean that a newer way of wording it is wrong. It may actually be more accurate to the original languages. We'll get into more of that. Uh, in a few minutes. We're going to start in Matthew 21, uh, verse 28. And Malachi, if you don't mind advancing those as we go, we're just going to look at uh, this text. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to show you this um, couple of verses to illustrate. It's Matthew. It'll be up on the screen. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Matthew 21, uh, verse 28 says, this is Jesus speaking, giving a parable. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Now, I'm not going to get into the context what that's talking about. Um, I'm just worried about translation at this point. So notice verse uh, 20, uh, let's see here, 29, where it says there, I don't know if I have that. Yeah, I do. Okay, so that's the ESV's translation. He changed his mind. So this guy, he, the father comes to his son and says, Go work in my field today. He says, uh, no, he refuses. Afterward, he changes his mind and goes. Okay, now look at, this is, I think next I have the King James, which says, he answered and said, I will not, but afterward he repented and went. So the word changed his mind is there translated repented. Uh, here's the NASB. He answered, I will not, but afterward he regretted it and went. I bring this text up to show you these are all three legitimate translations of the original word. Uh, the Greek word is metanoia. It's normally translated repented, but the, the root of it means change your mind. But there's also a connotation of regret there. All three of those are legitimate. Um, so th what this illustrates is you can translate a word a couple of different ways without one of them being right and the others wrong. There, there's something called semantic uh, domain, where there's a range of meanings um, to some words. So, so it doesn't always, there's not always a one-to-one -one correlation with translations. Does that make sense? Okay. So as we go throughout this, what we need to ask, obviously, is which, which translation is most accurate to the original languages. 
just keep in mind that that's not always one way of wording it. You can word things a few different ways, um, emphasizing even slightly different aspects of the same words without them being inaccurate. Okay, so if you pick up uh, an NIV, a King James, and an NASB, for instance, and you were to read them side by side, you would notice lots of differences between them. And those would be based primarily on three things. So first is when the translation was made. Um, I think I have a chart up here just to show you. I think I showed this uh, last Sunday, maybe. But you see, the, the King James was translated in 1611 is when it was published. So that's over 400 years ago. Um, then you have some other ones, like the revised version that was in the 1800s. Most of them, though, were in the 1900s, and you have some more recent in the 2000s. So obviously, if you're reading a translation that's 400 years old, it's going to sound different than one that was made 10 years ago, right? Because it's just English has changed. Um, so that's going to be one of the main differences that you'll have. In some cases, there may be differences in modern translations in the King James because our understanding of Greek grammar or definitions of certain words has even improved over time. Uh, for example, in the 1700s, a man named Granville Sharp discovered a rule in Greek grammar. I'm going to read this, and it probably won't make sense to you, and then I'll show it, and hopefully it will then. But here's the rule. Um, if you have two nouns which are not proper names, which are describing a person, and the two nouns are connected by the word and, and the first name has the article the, while the second does not, both nouns are referring to the same person. I know this sounds very confusing. I'm going to show you an example of this. And this is from the New Testament. You'll see a difference in how the new, the new versions translate uh, versus the King James based on this grammatical rule. Titus 2.13 says in the King James, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you notice there at the end of the verse, it seems like there's a distinction between God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. You see that? So you've got our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the ESV and in most modern translations, it'll say something like, waiting for our blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now there you see that it's the same person. Okay, so that is a slight distinction made uh, because of Granville Sharp's rule that was discovered in the 1700s. So this is an example of a difference in translation um, that is simply a result of a, a discovery in Greek syntax that wasn't known to the King James translators. Okay, we'll look at another example, the same, very same thing uh, in 2 Peter verse 1. And by the way, some of these I had to cut a little bit. If you see ellipsis, that's why. I'm not taking things out of context just to fit it all on the same screen uh, so you can see both side by side. 2 Peter 1, 1 says, Through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Again, it seems like two different people. Uh, modern translations say, By the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Um, and so in both of those, those, those are two examples where the ESV has a stronger reading of the deity of Christ because of Granville Sharp's construction. Um, now, I, the reason the ESV's translation is right on these verses is not because it shows the deity of Christ stronger. It's because it's more accurate to the original Greek. In other words, we don't need to look at something and say, well, this seems more orthodox, therefore it's a better translation. Uh, the question has to be, what did Peter write? And what's the best way to translate what he actually wrote? Um, and so this is... You know, it's not about which one sounds best or which one fits our theology better. The question is, which one is more accurate of a translation? Uh, also, please understand, I am not saying that the King James is an evil translation and that they purposely removed the deity of Jesus. Okay, people do this. You can do this with any translation. If you look for a difference, you can make one of them look like, oh, they're purposely changing something. No. Uh, this is a grammatical rule they did not know about. 
Um, part of that is because they were very familiar with Latin, and in Latin there's no word for the. There's no definite article. Um, but regardless, this, this is just something that came about later on. So even though the modern translations show the deity of Christ here, but the King James does not, that doesn't mean the King James translators were purposely trying to hide that or something. Uh, it's just a, an, an improvement, basically, in our knowledge of Greek. Okay. So that's going to be some differences. Most of the differences between the King James and modern versions are simply bringing uh, the words into modern English. That's going to be uh, every sentence, pretty much. You're going to notice that it's, it just sounds more modern. It's not Elizabethan English. Uh, I'll show a few examples of the Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Only he that now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. That's the King James Version. Um, let there is an Old English word that means prevent. So, you know, when you read that in English today, it makes no sense. He that letteth will let. But uh, ESV, only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And, and it's saying the same thing. It's just clearer because it's modern English. We don't live 400 years ago. Um, so that's going to be the majority of, uh, of the changes that you have there. And again, I, that's not to bash the King James translation. It's just we don't talk that way anymore. This is, you know, modern English. Um, here's another example. If, if, you know, some people kind of think you don't need to update the translation. The King James is fine. You need to, you know, just basically it can be perceived as though we're dumbing down the Bible. Um, I don't know if you've heard that before. Some people kind of think that, that we ought to stick with the Old English uh, translation. I'm going to read a couple of verses here, and I just want to see if you can make any sense out of this. This is 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verses 11 through 13 in the King James. It says, O ye Corinthians, our mouth is open unto you, our heart is enlarged. Ye are not straightened in us, but ye are straightened in your own bowels. Now for recompense in the same, I speak as unto my children, be ye also enlarged. Anybody want to take a stab at what that means? Okay, talk about a very confusing passage. And it's, it's not confusing in Greek, it's just there's a lot of archaic words in that, those few sentences. Uh, we don't say, I'm straightened in my bowels anymore. Um, so here's, here's a modern translation, I think it says the NIV, uh, where it says, we have spoken freely to you, this is the same text, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Um, it's saying the same thing, but boy, is that a lot clearer, uh, because it's, it's modern English. So that's going to be another one of the major differences. Um, and by the way, that's, that's really the main reason that I recommended we update the translation here, is I know how frustrating it can be um, to try to read the Bible and feel like you're not understanding a word it's saying. I get that. And, uh, you know, some of it is just the Bible is a high literary book. You're not going to understand everything. But if you can remove an impediment like Old English, I think that's a good thing to do, um, just to make it a little bit more understandable and just clearer and more helpful. So that's going to be the main reason you would have differences between a King James and a modern version. Uh, the ESV that we're going to be using here was made, I think, 20 years ago. I think it was 2001. Um, so very modern English. You're not going to have these and withers and hithers and all of that type of thing. All right, second reason would be different manuscripts that are translated. Uh, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And again, if you missed the lesson on uh, textual transmission, you can look that up on, on our YouTube channel where we went over all of this. Uh, but this is where a lot of the debate comes from. Which manuscripts should be used uh, to translate, especially the New Testament? Um, so this, uh, yeah, this is kind of a, an oversimplification. I'll just admit that right now. Uh, this is 
not exactly accurate. It's just the simplest way that I can explain it. Um, so you've got a few different translations here. All of these are modern translations within the last 50 years. So on the right here, you've got um, the modern English version and the New King James. Those are both based upon uh, the same Greek manuscripts that were used in the King James Version. So the only difference really is it's modern English. Um, and they're both fine. There's nothing wrong with them. But they are translating those uh, later manuscripts. Again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, mostly around Byzantium, those few late manuscripts that Erasmus had access to. Um, over here you have the NASB and the NIV, which technically are not based on Westcott and Hort. Okay, I know that's technically not true. They are based on a very old edition of the Nestle Long Greek text. But at the time, it was very similar to Westcott and Hort's text. Um, it was based, in my opinion, it leaned too heavily on two old Greek manuscripts, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus. I don't know if that even means anything to you, but um, in my opinion and the opinion of many scholars, those early texts made in uh, the late 1800s, early 1900s were primarily based on those two manuscripts. So in other words, there were places where there would be a reading in Sinaiticus that would not be in any other manuscripts and they would go with it just because it's old, um, which I think is a little bit of an overcorrection. Um, so what you have in the middle is the Nestle Elan text. Uh, United Bible Society also has Greek text. It's the exact same. It's just a different apparatus. Um, but this is based on what's called reasoned eclecticism, which means they look at all of the manuscript evidence and they weigh certain manuscripts by criteria like uh, accuracy of the rest of the, the manuscript. So if there's mistakes all throughout it, you're not going to trust it in a questionable reading. Um, as well as the age, as well as the geographic um, spreading of a text. So if you find a reading in five different parts of the world early on, that's a, you know, that's a heavier weight to that reading, if that makes sense. So in my opinion, this is the best um, manuscripts that we have, is the Nestle Lawn. And this is, I put the ESV and uh, CSB up there. Most modern translations are based on the Nestle Lawn. Uh, anything that's come out in the last 40 years is going to be based on that text, other than the MEV. Um, that's the rare exception. But pretty much all the rest are going to be based on, on the Nestle Lawn text. So if you just want to summarize this, um, the, the Textus Receptus, the King James manuscripts, those are, are based on those later manuscripts, uh, which contain, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, some pretty obvious errors that were inserted by scribes along the way. Uh, the Westcott and Hort texts, in my opinion, are a bit out of balance because they went so heavily uh, in favor of a couple of old manuscripts, um, even over against all of the other evidence, whereas the Nestle Lawn, I think, is a good balance. Um, based on more widespread evidence and not just uh, a strict preference for one manuscript, if that makes sense. Are there any questions at this point? I know I'm giving you a lot of information. This is fire hose here. Any questions? Anything unclear? Is there, there's probably a lot unclear and you don't know what to ask. Uh, okay, we'll move on though. Let's uh, look at the next difference. So one would be Old English versus Modern English, some of it would be manuscript differences, and then lastly are different translation philosophies. Uh, this chart here represents my opinion. This is not official. This is just my interaction with these uh, different translations. So you have on the left side formal equivalency, um, which are the more word-for-word -word literal translations. The NASB is about as literal as you can get while still being English. It's basically Greek. Um, it's, in other words, they keep the word order so close to the original that it's, it sounds like Yoda half the time because, you know, we, they didn't rearrange things, which is fine. It, it is very literal and very precise. 
Um, but it's not as readable as some other translations. So on the opposite side, you've got the NLT, um, which the NLT is a very, what's called dynamic translation, which means it's very readable. It's on like a third grade reading level. Um, but sometimes when you do that, uh, you miss some of the precision and nuance. I'm sorry, is one of you in third grade? Did I just insult Emmanuel? I'm sorry. I can't, wait. second grade, forget third grade. Anyways. Um, but what, what, so it is very readable. You can sit down and read it. It's very clear. But uh, I'll show you some examples of where that can go wrong uh, in just a few minutes. Most translations are going to be somewhere in between. Um, so basically, each translation committee has to decide when they make a new English Bible what their translation philosophy is going to be. Do we want to be as literal as possible to give people a precise, you know, very accurate uh, translation in English? Or do we want to make it very readable and, in some cases, sacrifice some of that precision and accuracy? Uh, so the NASB translation was you know, trying to be as literal as possible. The NLT more uh, trying to be readable and understandable. Uh, but when you do that, sometimes it's, it's trying to be so readable that it's not as closely tied to the wording of a particular text in the original language. And like I said, most translations are going to be somewhere in the middle. Um, the ESV, again, in my opinion, is a very good balance of the two, and there's many that are. The CSB is uh, also, um, where they, it tries to be very close to the original languages, so you're not you know, changing things and just rewording things willy-nilly, but it's also readable. It's not, it doesn't sound strange in English. All right, um, just to show you uh, a few examples of this, Luke 9.44 um, this is where Jesus is telling his disciples he's going to be killed. We looked at this just a, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, the King James, I'm sorry, the NASB says, let these words sink into your ears. That is very literal to the Greek. That's, you know, as literal as you can be in English. That's like one, in other words, one Greek word to one English word. Let these words sink into your ears. Um, the NIV does this with it. It says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. They're translating the same sentence in Greek. One is very close to the original wording. The other is trying to get the idea across in the way we normally talk in English. So the NIV um, basically changed the wording a bit from let this sink into your ears to listen carefully to what I'm saying, which arguably is what the text means. So it's not that it's an inaccurate translation, but it is a, it's trying to be readable and a little less precise to the exact wording. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, Let's look at a couple more examples here. Uh, oh, I think I have an interlinear. Yes, okay. So this is John 3.16 in an interlinear translation, meaning it's just, uh, you see the Greek words on top, and each one you have the word right underneath it. So this is what it sounds like if you were to translate it exactly word for word. Thus indeed loved God the world, that the Son, the only begotten he gave, that everyone believing in him should not perish, but might have life eternal. Okay. It sounds a little bit weird, but you recognize that it's John 3.16. Um, so any translation that you read, it's not going to be that. They're going to reword things. They're going to smooth it out and make it sound like English. Um, so all translations do this. There's no such thing as a perfectly literal translation is what I'm trying to say. Uh, all of them try to, to make it sound like normal English. The question is, how far do you go with that? Uh, because if you go too far with trying to be readable in English you can end up straying from what the text actually says to what the translators think the text means. And that's the danger of 
a more dynamic translation. And so there's a balance that you want to you strive for in a good translation. You want to be clear in English, but also as close as possible to the wording of the original languages. Um, also, sometimes things just don't translate cleanly from one language to another. Uh, if any of you, I don't know if you guys speak Spanish at all, maybe I'm assuming, no. Um, if you guys speak another language, you know this. There's some words that just don't transfer. Um, in French, the word home, there's no English word for home, or I'm sorry, there's no French word for home. Um, so you can kind of tweak that, but it's not, it's not the same. Go ahead, Malachi. Right. This is true of translating anything, basically. If you're going to translate something from one language to the other, you know, most of it might be really easy to know, okay, this word means this, this word means this. But then you're going to come up across a word, inevitably, that you're going, wait a minute, I don't know exactly how to translate that, because there's not always a one-to-one -one correlation. A good example of this, Romans 6. We'll look at a couple of these. <clears throat> Romans 6, starting verse 1. This is King James, I think. It says, uh, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now, you notice that at the beginning of verse 2, the words God forbid. Um, in Greek, the word God is not there. Theos isn't there. The word is no. <laughs> okay, but it's megeneto, which is the strongest way in Greek of saying no. So there's, uh, I think there's three different ways in Greek to say no. And each one is a little bit stronger. So when you say megeneto, that's like no with an explanation point and, you know, underlined. And the way in Old English that you would say a very strong, absolutely not, is God forbid. That was the strongest way in Old English to say no. So that's not a literal translation. Again, God isn't there, forbid isn't there. What they're trying to say is no, but they're trying to, to show the force of the Greek word. Um, the ESV's translation of this says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, and there the, the ESV translation committee decided to do uh, by no means exclamation point. You see, they're trying to show the force. It's not just no, it's absolutely not. Um, so that's an example where, you know, how do you, how do you show the force of a word? Not just the exact definition, uh, but to show this, the, the force of it in the original language. Okay, now I do want to show 
an example where a less literal translation uh, is actually more accurate. In case you think, well, why don't we just go with the most literal? Why don't we use an NASB and just uh, make it as literal and close to the original wording as possible? Uh, we're going to read Ecclesiastes 11. I think this is the last example I have. Ecclesiastes 11, verse 1. This is the King James. It says, Cast thy bread upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Any guesses as to what that means? Okay. So you understand. Okay, but just reading it, if you were just to read this, you would think it's saying, take some bread and throw it out of water. You know, it's kind of incoherent. Um, but this is a very literal translation. The Hebrew says, cast your bread across the waters. Okay, here's uh, a modern English translation. It says, ship your grain. This is the same text. Ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yea, in eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Um, if you ever invested money, now you understand this. It's saying, uh, you know, invest in things so that you can receive a return on your investment and diversify in seven or eight things so that there's not disaster that takes out all of your investment. Um, it's clear in a modern translation, at least some modern translations, but like the NASB, they stick with cast your bread across the waters because that's, that's what the Hebrew says. Uh, what the NIV does here is they try to show you what it means. And in this case, I think a less literal translation is actually far more helpful. Um, so, in other words, I'm just trying to confuse things a little bit uh, to say it's not as simple as just saying, let's make it as literal as possible. Sometimes it doesn't work. Uh, sometimes you have to try to discover what this means and, and carry that over into English. Um, and, and again, I think the ESV is a good balance of the two. We're going to look at it more on Sunday particularly, showing the ESV versus many other translations, the NIV, King James, all those. Um, and I'll try to clarify more of why we chose that particular translation. But when it comes to uh, Bible translations, there are going to be differences between them. But one important thing to notice is no English, or I'm sorry, no essential Christian teaching is changed by using a different translation of the Bible. Okay, as long as, caveat, you're using a legitimate translation of the Bible. Uh, the New World Translation is not a legitimate Bible. Okay? That is a heretical Bible where they purposely changed every place where the Bible says Jesus is God. They tweaked it to take that out. Okay, So that's not even a Bible. That is an absolutely heretical perversion of the Bible. But um, all of the modern translations, the popular ones, like the NIV, the ESV, the New King James, New American Standard, CSB, all of those are faithful, accurate Bibles. And you're not going to get Jesus rose from the dead in one and he didn't in another, or the Trinity is true in one and it's not in the others. Uh, go ahead. Well, why? Okay. Okay, so how can you tell which Bible you can trust and which you can't? Well, first of all, that's why I just said what I said. Uh, you can trust all of them. None of them are, are going to give you, other than the New World Translation or something paraphrastic like the Message Bible. Again, I don't consider that a Bible. Um, but a, a committee-translated Bible like the NIV, the New King James, New American Standard, ESV, even the NLT. It's not a heretical Bible. Um, some of them are going to be closer to the wording of the original language than others. But none of them are going to distort Christian doctrine. So I know you say you don't call them the Bible. But yes. If someone new to all this is going to 
one looking at me, how can you tell? Do you have it like someplace in your, you know, inside of the book where it tells you? I mean, like how? Okay, so, okay, I see what you're saying. So how can you, if you're going to a bookstore looking for a Bible, how can you tell, is this a good translation or not? Well, <clears throat> one good thing to do, obviously, is just to research. Don't just buy something off the shelf. Look into it a bit. Um, I've looked into probably the top 10, 15 ones that sell, and they're all fine. There's nothing wrong with them. Again, I like some more than others. We'll show some of that on Sunday. Um, but I would say, personally, one thing to look for is something... Normally, if you look at the inside cover of a Bible, it will tell you, it'll be a note from the translators explaining what text they translated and what their translation philosophy was. Um, so the CSB and the ESV, I think, both use the phrase essentially literal translation, which means they're not trying to be, or functionally literal, something like that, um, which, which will tell you, basically, they're going to tell you in the introduction to the translation, is this trying to be readable? Or is this trying to be literal? Or is it trying to be a balance of the two? So that's something that you can look at. If you read the NLT, it'll say something like, you know, this is a Bible even your kids can understand. It's simple, it's clear. And so you get what they're doing. They're trying to make it as readable as possible. If you read the NASB, they're going to be talking about all of the uh, scholarship behind the translation to make it as close to the Greek. You know, all the seminaries love this Bible, that sort of thing. And so you get the idea, okay, this is more literal. <clears throat> um, the CSB, I think the tagline for the CSB is something like um, faithful to the original language but clear for today's reader, something like that. So there you see there's a balance of the two in the ESV too. Do you guys see something in yours? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no, okay. Yeah. So in my opinion, the best balance is something like a functionally literal or essentially literal. I think a literal translation is better than a dynamic translation overall. So, you know, I'd rather use an NASB than an NLT. But I don't think either one of you, either one of them is going to distort the Bible or anything like that. Bruce, did you have a question? I saw you raised your hand, but I, I may have talked too long. I don't think I raised my hand. Oh, okay. Maybe not. Okay. Um, what's that? In my mind, I did. Did you have a question? Okay. Okay. But I will say this. If you're used to one translation and all of a sudden someone translates it a little bit different, a different word right here, it, it, it doesn't destroy the meaning, but it, it, in my mind, I sometimes I wait a little bit. You know, if, 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 the, if, the, if the sun shall make you free, you will be free indeed. Okay. Mm -hmm. The other translation is if the sun sets you free. There's no difference, really. Yeah. But all of a sudden, my, my ears are jingling or something. I, I don't know what it is. I, I guess what I'm saying is it'd be nice if we all had the same Bible, but maybe that doesn't bother us. Yeah, it, it isn't. <laughs> um, I, so, yeah, I, I do agree. I grew up on the King James. So for the first 20 years of my life, that's all I used. It wasn't until college that I made a switch. Uh, and then I started to kind of look into different ones and landed on the ESV. But I had the same experience where I would read... Uh, read something that I had memorized in the King James, and it sounded very strange to me in a modern translation. Um, I remember sitting in church, not here, but somewhere where they were using, I think it was, yeah, it was an ESV, and they were reading from Romans, therefore, uh, therefore there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. And the new translations, because of manuscript difference, 
that last part who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit isn't there. And I remember like, wait a minute, <laughs> it just threw me off. Um, and I knew the reason why. I knew all about textual criticism at that point, but it still sounded, it just kind of tripped me up because I was so used to hearing it the way that I had grown up. So I totally understand that. Um, and, and it is difficult. I, I mean, I have probably thousands of verses memorized in the King James English that I'm never going to be able to transfer to the ESV. There's some verses when I quote them, it's going to come out in King James because I, I memorized it when I was five, you know? And so it's just there and it's, it's never going to transfer. Um, but at the same time, again, you got to think about what is the most helpful Bible for people to read? And I just don't think a 400-year-old translation is. So, you know, yeah, are we all going to land on one translation? Unfortunately not. Um, some of that is financially motivated, quite frankly. You have different publishing houses that have their own translations. So, so Zondervan has the NIV, Crossway the ESV, uh, Lockman has the NA, uh, NAS. Um, and so whenever they want to come out with a study Bible or something, they don't want to pay royalties to the other companies. And so they come out with their own English translation. So some of it is financially motivated, um, but as far as are we all going to land on one, I doubt it. And if we do, I, you know, it'll be a while before that happens. But I would also say, um, maybe to play devil's advocate, uh, I do think there's a value sometimes in being tripped up. Because you get so used to the way something's worded, you hear a different wording, and it makes you actually think about what the verse is saying. And, and so sometimes, you know, reading, a reading three or four translations can really actually help you understand the text better because you're getting different translations of the same words. So I don't know if I would, if I could make everybody use the ESV, I don't think I would. I think there's a value to having uh, a few translations. I think there are way too many. We don't need to have 150 in English or whatever we have. Uh, but, you know, I, I think having three or four good ones is actually valuable. Though I do understand what you're saying. You get used to one and, uh, and it does kind of trip you up sometimes. All right, let's see. Is there anything else I wanted to say here? Yeah, so first of all, yes, the, there is no difference in doctrine in a good English translation, which are the vast majority. As long as you're not using, like we talked about Wednesday, the Ebonics Bible, um, or something you know stupid like that. If you're using a serious committee-translated Bible that's not the Jehovah's Witness Bible, you'll be fine. Um, some will be more or less clear in English. Some are going to be more or less accurate to the original Greek and Hebrew. But it is not something to fight with other Christians about. That's another point we need to make very clear. Just because we're using the ESV doesn't mean the NIV is a terrible translation. Okay, there are plenty of great churches that use a New American Standard, a New King James, and there are brothers in Christ, and we should not make this a point of contention. Um, this is one of those things that I just wish Christians would stop fighting about. All right. Um, I guess the uh, last kind of thing I wanted to say before we, I'll take, I'll take a few more minutes for questions after. Uh, I do recommend, like I, I mentioned a few minutes ago, I do recommend to you, if you are studying a text and you're unclear as to what it means, try to look it up in a couple of translations. An easy way to do this is with your phone. Okay, how many of you have the version app? You guys have the version Bible app? Oh, come on, you got to get this. Um, there's a lot of Bible apps out there. They're all fine. The version I think, is the easiest. And it has, it's got to have 50 English translations. And you can just click on the top and switch from one to the other. 
Um, so I really like that. When I prepare sermons, one of the things that I do is I look up the text in, I think, 12 different translations. I have them saved in my phone. And I read it in those different translations, and you know, a lot of times it's saying the exact same thing. But occasionally, there's a nuance in one that really brings out something I hadn't seen. Um, so that's a good way to study the Bible, is just to, to read parallel, side by side, a couple of different English translations. Uh, we are truly blessed in, in, in America, as English speakers, to have the Bibles that we have in our language. Uh, most places in the world either don't have a Bible, or if they do, it is very poorly translated. Even, even something that is not, you know, I'll pick on the NIV next week quite a bit. Um, it's not my favorite translation, but it's better than the vast majority of the other languages have. If you, I mean, the Japanese would love to have a Bible like the NIV, as accurate as that is. Um, so this is something we really ought to thank God for, that we have such good translations. Now, one, no one Bible version is going to be perfect. Uh, human beings are the ones doing the translating. So human beings, uh, to, to be human is to err, as the saying goes. And so, yes, you're going to have some translations where there's issues. But what we have in the English language is really uh, a treasure of the absolute best, most accurate translations of the Bible. And I think it's something we ought to praise God for. Any questions? Anything tangential, that's fine. We can, like I said, we have plenty of time for questions if you have. Malachi, you look like you have a question. Okay. Yeah, all translations have their strong and weak points. And uh, just because we're using the ESV here doesn't mean, there will be times, I'm sure, when I'm preaching where I may put up a different translation of a verse because it says it more clearly. It's not, the ESV isn't perfect. Please don't get that idea. Um, I, again, I think it's the best translation in English. If I thought there was a better one, I would recommend we use that one. Um, but just because I think it's the best doesn't mean I think it's totally perfect in every place. Um, if you do not have an ESV, there are, I think, I think I see a couple more copies back there. Um, feel free to take one home. Those are for you guys to have. Uh, so if you don't have one, you can, you can grab one on your way out. There's also a pamphlet back there. 
uh, by Kevin DeYoung. I'll talk about that more on Sunday, called Why Our Church Switched to the ESV. Very little booklet. It just kind of gives some side-by-side comparisons um, between the ESV and NIV and kind of shows some of the differences there. Uh, if you don't read that, I am going to cover most of it next Sunday uh, during the 10 o'clock hour. So if you're here, you'll get the majority of it there. But any other questions before we close? Anything at all? Anything unclear? Anything you have just a further question about? Okay. How much different is the ESV from the last version? From the King James? No, like the one twenty years ago. No, no, it is the one twenty years ago. I'm sorry. The ESV we're using here was translated 20 years ago. Okay, that, okay, that's that's a good question. So, um, so yes, that's a difficult question to to decide. You know, because you want a translation that's updated. So, a hundred years from now, we may not talk the way we do now. There may be a little difference. Um, but at the same time, you don't want to be updating your translation every five years and. Who can memorize a verse then? So it is a difficult question. The ESV, uh, like I said, it came out in 2001. They revised it a few years later. They didn't change much in their update. I think it was maybe nine years ago or so. But after they updated, they they came out and said, we're going to make this a stable text. We're not going to change it anymore, um, f- basically to address that. So people can you know grow up on the ESV, memorize verses, and it's not different years later. It's not worded differently. But then, a couple months later, they reversed that and said, ah, we might change it. So (laughs) I wish they would have stuck with that, because I I like the idea of having a stable translation, and then 150 years from now, if we need a new one, you can make a new one. Don't call it an ESV. Make it something different. Um, That's my preference. Uh, But I don't think they're going to change it for a long time, and if they do, they're going to be very careful not to change it much. but beyond that, I mean, the New American Standard, for instance, came out in 1970. There's a 2020 edition that just came out. How so, do you describe like, the other three manuscripts? Like, the textual platforms, yep. Yeah, like, like for like, our generation, now, would we be considered our manuscripts for the teachers now or no? Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> like, would those? Would like, like hundreds of years from now, are we, are we they're going to look back at this time? Like, like, are they going to discover more manuscripts? No, like, I don't know. I guess what I'm trying to say, like, they look back at this time, and they're going to be like, ESV, or this English standard version, these are the manuscripts for mm-hmm. English speakers, you know, I guess. I don't know if I'm totally following. Are they going to be, are they going to look at the English translations we have now as manuscripts for translating earlier, is that right? I guess so. Yeah. Okay, so all of these... Um, these are not updates to a, a new, like the ESV is not an update to the King James. It's a new translation. So they're actually looking at Greek and Hebrew manuscripts and translating them freshly, if that makes sense. Uh, the question about the three platforms I put up, which again is an oversimplification, is what manuscripts should you use to translate from? So we talked about this a couple of Sundays ago. There's 5,800 Greek manuscripts in the New Testament, uh, but there's differences between them. So some of them scribes made mistakes, some of them scribe added a line, forgot a line, things like that. Um, <clears throat> so the question is, where there are, there are differences in the, tra- in the manuscripts, which ones are accurate and which ones are mistakes? That's the, where the debate is. Um, and that makes up, you know, a very tiny percentage of the New Testament, but it is still there. Um, 
But as far as that, I don't think much is going to change. I don't think they're going to dis discover new Greek manuscripts that change the New Testament much. Uh, 400 years ago, Erasmus had six. <laughs> six manuscripts, all of them a thousand years removed. Now we have, like I said, almost 6,000. And they go from the second century, possibly late first century, most likely second century, to the 15th century, all over the world. So there's just a lot more evidence. And I think the more evidence you have, the more stable that becomes. So in other words, if they discovered 500 new manuscripts, I don't think it would change a whole lot. Um, so yeah, I don't think the Greek text is going to change much. The, the only thing that could change, oh man, I don't know how to explain this. Um, CBGN, Coherence-Based Genealogical Method. It's a, a way of comparing Greek manuscripts digitally. And it's way too complicated for me to get into right now. That may change. So it's basically trying to determine the relationships between manuscripts, so which ones originated from others. Very complex. It's taken them 30 years, I think, and they've come out with maybe six or seven books. So that's going to be a while before they're done with the New Testament. That could potentially change some things in our Greek text. Um, but even that, I don't think it's going to be major changes. So, do you have a question? Yeah, I don't think that's too likely. Because even 50 years ago, the manuscripts aren't that different from now. 400 years ago, big difference, because they had way less manuscripts. Okay. Um, okay, so yeah, primarily Greek and Hebrew are what's going to be translated from. Um, there are 10,000 or so Latin manuscripts. There are also Coptic and Syriac manuscripts. Coptic is sort of like Greek hieroglyphics, if that makes sense. Um, and those, those are not considered to be as relevant because, for one thing, it's a translation of the Greek and Hebrew, which is what was originally written. And so sometimes things don't, you know, you don't want to translate from another language's translation of the original. You want to stick with the original languages. So those, those are helpful to compare with textual variants because you can see um, if a line was skipped, say, and you're trying to determine should this line be in here or not, well, then the Latin and Coptic manuscripts would be very relevant because you would see, okay, at this time in history, they had that line in there or they didn't. So they're useful in textual criticism, but they're not as authoritative as Greek manuscripts. So that's a good question. And also, same thing would be true of uh, church fathers quoting the New Testament. Uh, those, are, those are helpful, but they're not going to be as authoritative as the Greek manuscripts themselves. So any other questions? I know it's a complicated subject, and uh, probably for most people here, it's, it's a new subject. And I understand that. It, it can be a bit overwhelming. Like I say, it took me two years to get my head around all of this. And I mean every day, hours reading, studying, and researching this. So it is it is complicated. I totally understand that. Um, Tito. Where did they find all these things? The manuscripts? Okay. Where did they... When it was first written. Okay, so originally the Bible was written on scrolls. Um, and then later on, basically... Uh, within a couple hundred years, they started writing on animal skins. So the new, to write an entire book of the New Testament would take about 300 sheep. <laughs> because they would, that's why it was so expensive. 
uh, they would kill the sheep, stretch out their skins, scrape the flesh off, and it would get real thin, sort of like paper. It's called parchments. Um, and so that's what the copies were made on during, I think, from like the 2nd to the 8th century, somewhere around there. Don't quote me on that. Um, so you had animal skins for a while. Earlier on, you had papyrus, which was a plant, uh, papyri reeds that grew along the Nile River that were used sort of like we have today with paper, because uh, obviously paper is made from trees originally, and then they kind of do stuff to it to make it into what we have. Uh, paper, I think, was invented in the 8th century or something. Um, so, yeah, originally you had scrolls, and then papyrus, and then animal skins, and then paper. So most so the oldest manuscripts are on papyrus. Uh, and there's Most of the manuscripts are on parchments, I believe. And then you have some later ones on paper. Right, so the New Testament books, the book of Romans wasn't sent all over the world. It was sent to one church in Rome. The book of Ephesians was sent to Ephesus. Um, so yes, there was a period of time where these were separate books, and they kind of circulated, and then people started putting them all together in the 27 New Testament you know, that we have now, which happened pretty early on. You'd be surprised at how early on it happened. Um, I mean, Codex Sinaiticus, for instance, is the oldest complete New Testament. dates to around 330 A.D., um, so a couple hundred years after the original, you've got the entire Old and New Testament together in one volume. Vatican is the same thing. Um, but yes, most of them are going to be either one book or a combination of books. There's a lot of manuscripts that have the four Gospels. Those were copied far more than any other New Testament books. Anybody want to guess what the least copied book was? No? Nope. Nope. No, New Testament. Sorry, New Testament. Revelation, by a long shot. Um, I don't know, maybe they were just confused. But, but yeah, I think there's something like 600 of Revelation where there's like 2,000 of John, for instance. Um, so big difference there. Anyways, any other questions? Malachi, you look like you had a question. No, you're just, okay. Any other questions? I, again, I do want to take any questions that you have tonight because um, we have more time here than I normally have on a Sunday. Yes, so how early on was the, the Old Testament all one, I don't, I don't want to say one book, but all collected into one considered scripture? Uh, certainly by the time of Ezra. So some of the books, you got you to think they were written over a thousand years. You know, Genesis was written during the days of Moses, uh, arguably earlier. It could have been passed down from generations. But uh, so, so you have the Pentateuch and Moses' day all the way to uh, a book like Malachi, which was written just a few hundred years before Jesus. So you've got a thousand years that people, people are writing these things. But certainly by Ezra's day, it seems like um, all of those copies were put together. So after the exile, when they came back to Israel, uh, during that period is when you had the entire New Testament put together. And then you have the intertestamental books that were rejected. They were not accepted as Scripture like the Old Testament. Well, most people think Ezra was the one who put it in the form it is today. The Old Testament, like the order of books and things. But at least by Jesus' day, all of what we have as the Old Testament was already compiled. Correct. Yep. Jesus had the exact same Old Testament we have today. Um, I'm sorry? 
Is it scrambled? Well, he might say ours is scrambled. We did. We talked about it under canonicity several weeks ago. Uh, yes, the Hebrew Bible ordering is different. So it goes from Genesis to Second Chronicles instead of Genesis to Malachi. Right, yes. Well, he was, okay, that brings up another point. Um, Jesus, definitely, Jesus and the apostles quoted from the Septuagint more than the original Hebrew Bible. The Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Yes, so so um, most, most of the quotations of Jesus are, and certainly of the apostles, are quotations from a translation, not the original Hebrew. In fact, many of them probably couldn't read Hebrew because at that time, you know, Alexander the Great Hellenized that whole area uh, to where they were all reading Greek. That was the, the written language of the day. And so they would speak Aramaic, which was a, a derivative of Hebrew, but they would write and read in Greek. Um, so, yes, Jesus himself and the apostles definitely condoned the use of translations and at times translations where they weren't exactly word for word translations. And yet Jesus quoted from them. So yes, I, I do think sometimes we are more nitpicky than Jesus about his own words. If that, if that can be said. Go ahead. Now that's not an argument to look at translations between the original, but that's more an argument where it's okay to look at a translation Yes, that means, well... Yeah, that was the Bible of their day. The Septuagint was the main text that they would they would have had. Um, uh, I don't know if I want to go into that. You said something that triggered a thought, and now it's gone from my mind. What did you say at first? Right, and it's just an argument to say that it's okay to translate the Bible into another language. Um, yes, there's something lost there, obviously. Whenever you translate, it's not going to be exactly the same. You're not going to have all the same nuances in the words. But Jesus thought it was acceptable. Obviously, he used it, and, and so did the apostles. Um, so, yeah, it's a good argument that, that translations are good. And the King James translators, that's what, that was what I was going to say. In the King James... <clears throat> preface, which most of you probably don't have in, in a King James Bible now, but there was, a, I think it's like a 17-page letter. It's called To the Reader from the Translators. Um, and it's, it mentions in there, they used this argument about the Septuagint and the fact that Jesus and the Apostles quoted from it uh, to say that even a poor translation, I think the way they said it is, even the very meanest of English translations containeth the Word of God, yea, is the Word of God. Um, and so they were trying to say, although we're, we're trying to improve upon the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, those that preceded the King James, uh, we're not trying to say those aren't the Bible. It should be a good attitude for some King James-only people to have. Um, but yes, it, it is, that's again why I tried to stress, the NIV is not my favorite translation. The NLT is not my favorite translation. It's still the Bible. It's still a good Bible. It's, it's not evil. Um, so anyways, yes, you can have a Bible that has some inaccuracies in it, and all of them do, because they're translations, uh, without them being anything less than the words of God. 
<clears throat> oh, the voice just went out there. Um, but the argument of the Septuagint just shows Jesus had that understanding, that, that a translation was still considered scripture. Hang on, let me get a drink. <clears throat> Are there any more questions? Everybody's good? Everybody's good or just ready to go home? I'm going to see, right? All right. Um, next Sunday, we will be talking. We're going to be uh, talking more specifically about the English Standard Version. And uh, I'll give you, I think I had 10 reasons why I like the ESV. And all of them will show comparisons with other versions. So you'll, you'll see that, and I hope it'll be helpful to you. And it'll probably explain more about Bible translations, too. If you had some questions, you uh, I'm too shy to ask tonight. Again, there are a couple of ESVs back there that you can take home with if you'd like. And if you haven't gotten the uh, book by Greg Gilbert, I do recommend that, uh, Why Trust the Bible. It goes into some of the textual critical stuff and uh, talks about canonicity, all those types of things that we've talked about so far. And I suppose with that, we will dismiss.